Welcome to the ministry of Faith Community Church of Indianapolis. We pray this message by Pastor John Roberts is a blessing to you. To learn more about Faith Community Church, please visit us at FCCIndianapolis.com. I want to look at how covenants played, or the covenant played into what we call Easter, the resurrection, because it's all fulfillment of covenant. And if you, if you want to get, go back, I'm not going to review it that much, but in, in 1 Samuel chapter 18 and 20, we looked at, at the covenants that David and Jonathan entered into, and we've still got one more of those to go to, and I will do that in a few weeks. But I, there are, and I'm just going to throw these out there, I'm not going to take time to really explain them a lot. But there are nine steps or nine features of a blood covenant. We have a very weak representation of the ancient blood covenants. We call them contracts, contract law. Two people want to come into agreement. They, they set down terms. They, they, they agree this is what we're agreeing to and they sign their name. Uh, the problem is we have an entire industry uh, fueled by lawyers to draw up those contracts so that they're not breakable, and then we have another group of lawyers that come in and do their best to break them. With a blood covenant, there, were, there are nine different features, and, and you will see parts of these represented in, in a lot of different covenants. In, in 1 Samuel eight or 18 and 20, we saw these first two. The, one of the first signs of a blood covenant being entered into is they, the two parties will exchange robes or exchange their, their, their cloaks. Basically, we see that in the covenant that Jesus made with us in that we have our, our works are as filthy rags, and that's what we gave him. He gave us the robe of righteousness. It was an exchange. And that really is what Easter is all about. It's about this great exchange that, we, that, that God did with us. The, the second, one of the second signs is the parties would take off their belt and any weapons that their belt had, and they would give them up to whoever they're entering in with the covenant with. And that was a sign that now your battles are my battles. Whoever opposes you, I will come to your aid. Well, let's face it, God doesn't need my help. I mean, if there's a battle going on, there's not a lot I can add to God's arsenal. But when I'm involved in a battle and I get to bring Him in, I, I, I really appreciate that help. Amen? That, that's one of the greatest parts. We don't have to fear anything that the devil brings at us. Because one of the um, um, other ones is we exchange names. He has given me his name. He has said, you are mine. You are part of my family now. And this is not, you know, if Bill and I went into a blood covenant, it's not that, that now you call me Bill and he calls, I call him John. It's, it's last names. It's family names. When you look at me, you pull out my driver's license, it says John Roberts, son of Georgia and Raymond Roberts. My grandparents, like you, you go on Ancestry.com, you can find my lineage. It's all there. 
That's not what this is talking about. It's the last name. When, when the enemy attacks me, I don't have to fight in my own strength because I have God's weapons, but one of his weapons is he gave me his name. When I go up against the devil, I don't say, hey, this Pastor John coming after you. He just laughs. He said, you know, in fact, uh, in, in Acts, it says that there were Jewish exorcists that were trying to cast the devil by the, the, by the name of the God that Paul preached. And the devils laughed and said, well, Jesus I know, Paul I know, who in the world are you? And then he just ripped them apart. If you've ever dealt with, with somebody that's, that's powerfully influenced by a demon, it's not, you can get beat up pretty hard. Unless you come, as Paul did and as Jesus did, I come in his name. It's not my might. It's not my power. It's not my authority. It's in the name of Jesus that I do everything that I do that's supposed to count. But go over to, to Genesis chapter 15. I want to look at this representation of the fourth one here. We're going to cut the covenant. And this is particularly important because this, Genesis chapter 15, is the basis of everything that we're doing. It's the basis of, of the covenant that God made with us. In verse, or chapter 15, verse 1, it says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Don't be afraid, Abram. I'm your shield, your exceeding great reward. This already tells me that Abram was walking in at least part of a covenant with, with God. He says, I'm your shield. I've already given you my weapons. Don't walk in fear. Walk in confidence. Verse 2 says, But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? Then Abram said, Look, You've given me no offspring, and indeed one born in my house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir, but one who will come out of your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, Look now toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. He just promised Abram a spiritual inheritance. You're going to have offspring. Now, later on, we will see that, that in Genesis chapter 22, God will make reference to this again. They say, see if you can name your descendants. They're going to be as the stars of heaven and the sand of the, on the seashore. That's two different families because Abram, bless his heart, he got impatient and Sarah got impatient and he had Ishmael by Hagar. And so he has a son, but it's not the son of the promise. So Abram has two different families. He has a natural family, those that are of the, of the, the lineage of Abram. That's all of the descendants of Ishmael and all of the descendants of Isaac. But he also has a spiritual family. I have no Jewish blood in me. As far as I know, I have no Arab blood. I'm not an, I'm not, uh, I don't have Ishmael or Isaac in my lineage. But I'm still a child of Abraham. Because we're going to see, verse 
6, after God said, so shall your descendants be. Verse 6, he says, and he, speaking of Abram, believed in the Lord and he accounted it to him for a righteousness. Abram, Abraham is the father of the faith and he's my father because I exercise the same faith that Abraham did. So I am one of the stars of heaven. Now you can be both one of the stars of heaven and one of the sand of the seashore. I know Jewish believers. They believe in Jesus as the Messiah. And they belong to both families. But the most important one is to be, have Abram be the father of your faith. Because he was the first one to believe in this covenant. But then, verse 7 then he said to him, this is God talking to Abram, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to inherit it. And he said, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? This reminds me of the, the incarnation. There were two stories told when, when Jesus was going to be born. There's a story of Mary... The angel came and said, Mary, you're going to conceive and your child will be the son of the Most High. And Mary said, How, how's that going to be? I'm, I'm a virgin. I can't have a child. And the angel did not rebuke her. She simply asked, she didn't ask a, a, a question out of doubt and unbelief. She asked the question practically, there's only one way to have babies. And I haven't met that requirement. How are you telling me I'm going to get pregnant? And he explains it to her. And she said, by your words, let it be unto me. She accepted. She grabbed it by faith, and he blessed her. And then you have, and I've lost his name now, Elizabeth's husband. He's in doing the, the, the temple um, um, functions as a priest. And the angel, Gabriel, appears to him. And he said, and he's an old man. Elizabeth's an old woman. They've, she's been barren their entire marriage. And he said, you're going to have a son, and he's going to be the precursor. He's going to be, uh, if it would, Elijah, who's going to preach about the Messiah. And he said, no, I don't think so. Dear God, I'm old. My wife's old. You know, she's been through menopause. We've, we've been married. We've had sexual relations for years. We have no children. This can't be. And the angel said, so you don't muck this thing up? I'm going to make you mute until that baby is born. And he didn't say another word. He could not speak. It was God said, I'm shutting your mouth so you don't mess up what I've got planned with your own words. And he didn't speak until he held John the Baptist in his hands and said his name is John. Because they wanted to name him after one of his ancestors. So when Abram says here, how shall I know that I will inherit it? He's not. He's believing God. He just wants to know, what's the deal here? And God said, okay, I'll tell you. Bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he cut a covenant. Abram split them down the middle and laid them out. So that they could, because the custom was you split these animals. He didn't split the birds, but he split the other animals and he laid them out and we're going to walk through them. And they would make a figure eight, which is the sign for infinity. It's an eternal covenant. And the, the cutting that covenant, killing those animals, declares 
look, if I get a good lawyer, I can get out of this deal. No, this covenant says, if I break this covenant, may what happens to these animals happen to me. It's a death sentence if you break that covenant. And Abram is sitting there. He's going into a covenant with God Almighty. If he does not fulfill this perfectly, he's a dead man. That's a, that'll blow your hair back. That didn't even blow my hair back. Doesn't take much of a breeze to do that. But what happens? Well, if you go on down, verse 12, it says, A deep sleep fell on Abram. If you go to verse 17... Says, and it came to pass when the sun went down and it was dark that behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces. And on the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. God the Father looked at Jesus. Now remember, they redeemed us before the foundation of the earth, before they ever created the first Adam, before they created any of the solar systems before anything in the universe existed, before time existed, God the Father and God the Son made a decision, we're going to create this universe, we're going to put man in there, they're going to fall, Satan's going to fall, and Jesus, you're going to go and redeem them back. This was all planned before he created the universe. But now it's time, they're looking at each other, and with their full knowledge, they know, There's no way Abram's going to keep this covenant. He's not capable of doing it. So Jesus, you go down and you take his place, and I'm going to make a covenant with you as his substitute. This is a pre-incarnate theophany, a display of God. And Jesus went down and walked through that, and when it says that there, there was a smoking oven and a burning torch, this is... This is Jesus in his glory. I think it was Isaiah said, he he said, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. He was fire from the waist up and from the waist down. When you see the glory of God, all you see is fire. That's what was it. This is Jesus coming in his full glory and he walked through this and he made a covenant with the Father. Now, in Genesis chapter 22... God puts a test to Abram. Part of this, um, one of the the signs, we exchange coats, we take off our belt, we cut the covenant, exactly what Abram and and God did. We exchange names. You also raise your right arm, your right hand, and you cut yourself, and you mingle your blood. Remember, Jesus said the the reason that we don't... um, we don't eat animals where that have been strangled. It's because their blood is still in them. The life of the animal is in the blood. So if you are going to um, slaughter, according to Jewish law, you bleed the animal out. You knock it unconscious, you slit its throat, and you allow the blood to empty out of the animal before you butcher it so that the blood is not in the animal. You don't partake of the life force of that animal but when you cut covenant and you you see this represented you cut your hand we grasp our hands that are cut and it's symbolic my blood is now your blood 
your life is now mine, my life is now yours. That's exactly what God's going to do. But he's going to, to put this, this covenant to the test. In Genesis chapter 22, verse 1, it says, It came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham. And he said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. Now notice from chapter 15 to chapter 22, he's changed his name. Zechariah. I think it was Zechariah. John's father. He shut him up. What did he do to Abram? He said, Abram, I'm changing your name. I'm now going to call you Abraham, father of nations. He had no children. And yet every time he grasped somebody's hand, you get introduced to somebody, you shake their hand. My coach, my father, every male when I was a teenager, this is how you shake hands. It's a firm handshake. You, you say very clearly, my name's John Roberts. You introduce yourself. Everybody that Abraham met, he said, I'm the father of nations. And they looked around and they said, he doesn't even have any kids. Eh, he's a little touched. He's getting old. He's in his 90s. He has no children. But I'm calling myself the father of nations. You know, we get accused being name it and claim it, gab it and grab it. Abraham would have been right there. He was claiming to be the father of nations when he had no children and he was an old man. Why? Because God said, that's who you are. He believed God more than he believed what he saw in his own body. Verse 2, then he said, when he called to Abraham, he said, take now your son, your only son, Isaac. Isaac is not his only son. There is Ishmael. Ishmael's been born. He's alive when God says this to him. So when God says that Isaac is your only son, he's not referring to his natural children because he's not his only son. But he is his uniquely born son. Ishmael was a child of the flesh. Isaac is a child of promise. Isaac is a supernatural son. It's very reminiscent of Jesus in the, in the New Testament. It says he is the only begotten of the Father. doesn't mean that God doesn't have any more children. It means that this one is unique. This one stands alone. This man, Jesus, is different from all other men. And it doesn't mean that he was born just without sin, had, did not have the sin nature. So was Adam. So was Eve. They were born in union, perfect. Perfect union with, with God. To the point where Jesus would come down in the garden and walk with them. And have discussions with them. So it wasn't just his birth. He was born of a virgin. So he didn't have the... the um, Adam was not his legal father. God the Father was His Father, and His lineage started there. Because the lineage came through the Father, not the Mother. That's why all of the Old Testament is patriarchal. Now I know there are a lot of, and I'm, I'm not going to get off on politics, but there's a lot of people will tell you they reject the Bible because it's a patriarchal society. It's there for one reason. Our sin nature came through Adam. 
I was born in sin because I'm a child of Adam. I stand sinless but now because I'm a child of God. I have a spiritual birth that supersedes my natural birth. Jesus could stand and say, I am not a child of Adam because I am not his son. There is no man that I call father. God is my father. That's why the virgin birth is essential. It's not just some quaint little, well, you know, there's a lot of ways you can be a virgin and still get pregnant. It's a little hard. It is technically possible. But that's not the point of the virgin birth. The point of the virgin birth is God is his father and not Adam. So he does not have the nature of sin. When the the New Testament says that Jesus was tempted in all ways like us, except for sin, there's two meanings of that. One, it does mean he never sinned. But it also means that he he has never been tested with sin the way I'm tested with sin. I'm tested with sin from the inside out. My very nature tempts me. You tell a two-year-old, don't do that. Their nature of sin will stand up and say, watch me. I'll never forget, and I love my daughter. She She is a great mother. She's a great woman. But I remember, four years old, stood this tall, walked up to me in the hallway. I told her to do something. No. Boy, I mean, and she, I'm, I'm not kidding. She put her hands on those little hips. She looked me right square in the eye, and she said, no. And Gina turned around and said, oh, my God. Please, God, don't let him kill her. Because we, we decided right then and right there who was going to be boss, me or her. And I, I, I didn't want to do it, but I had to win that battle because if I didn't win that battle, I was never going to win any more battles. It wasn't cute. Now, Looking back on it, it was pretty cute. But I also knew it was deadly serious. You want to know, and I know I'm going to chase a squirrel. You want to know why teenagers are out of control? Because at four, you thought it was cute and you didn't correct them. If If you don't get that at four years old, you cannot at 14. The The pattern's been set. Enough said. Verse 2, he says, Take your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah. Offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Notice he says, offer him. Abraham interprets that, I've got to kill him. But God never said, sacrifice him. He said, offer him. Drop down to... um, Well, let's go to verse 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him, and Isaac his son. He split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Then on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and worship and we will come back to you. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 19 says that that by faith Abraham offered Isaac knowing that God would even raise him from the dead. In Abraham's mind, God's told me to offer him. I'm going to go up there and I'm going to sacrifice him, but he's not going to stay dead. God will resurrect him. That's what Abraham said. 
is offering. I'll present my son. He will die as an offering to God, and God will then resurrect him. Now remember, Genesis 15, Abraham and God already have a blood covenant. It cannot be broken. God is testing Abraham and said, will you offer your son? And Abraham says, yes, I will. But when he dies, you will resurrect him. That's important for later on. And then he says, um, verse 6, well, 7, But Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. Then he said, Look, the fire and the wood. But where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Wasn't just Abraham's faith involved here. Isaac's faith was involved also. Verse 8, And Abraham said, My son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went together. Not only was Isaac willing to go, God, Dad just told me, God will provide a lamb. But Abraham put the wood on Isaac's back. A presage of Jesus carrying his cross. He carried the wood he was going to be sacrificed on. But notice Isaac, verse 9. They came to the place of which God had told him, and my personal belief, and I, a lot of scholars would agree with me, but it doesn't matter. I think where they are is Golgotha. They're exactly where Jesus was, was sacrificed. God sent them to the same place where he was going to sacrifice his son. They came to the place of which God had told him, and Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order, and he bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. It does not say that Abraham or that Isaac struggled. But Isaac did, or Abraham did bind him and laid him up on the wood. Isaac sent some faith here. Now I realize when you're a little boy and your dad tells you you're going to do something, in my family, you didn't resist. You know? You just didn't say no. But notice, God intervenes. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. Do not lay your hand on the lad or do, do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. Notice, Abraham expected a lamb... He got a ram, a full-grown male sheep. Again, perfect picture of Jesus. So Abraham went, took the ram, offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son, and Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide, Jehovah-Jireh. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And then verse 15, Then the angel of the Lord said to Abraham a second time out of heaven, and he said, By myself I have sworn. Hebrews says that God swore by his own name because he could find no one else to swear an oath by. He didn't make an, a, a covenant between him and Abraham. It was between the Father and Jesus. Jesus did it in Abraham's stead. Abraham is still required, but when Abraham messes up, 
Jesus stands there and says, no, I'm standing here for him. Abraham has now offered his only son by requirement because one of the things that you do in the blood covenant, you list all of your assets and all of your liabilities. And everything that is mine is yours, but everything that's yours is now mine. Well, when we laid out the piles, here was my pile right there. God laid out His pile, the whole universe. He said, I own it all. It's like the joke between the, the scientists and, and God. And the scientists said, look, we, we've got technology now. I can create life just like you, God. And he said, really? Let's put it to the test. And he said, okay. And the scientist went to his laboratory and he started grabbing all these materials. And God said, whoa, 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 wait a minute, what are you doing? He said, well, I'm going to create life. He said, no, you've got to go make your own stuff. In other words, science may even be able to create a living cell. I haven't yet, which ought to tell you the foolishness of, of um, um, the, the theory of spontaneous generation of life. With all the technology, and there's a lot of technology out there, and all the scientific minds in the world, they can't create one cell. And yet it was supposed to have happened in prehistory in a little pool a bubbling goop. Yeah. But notice what God said. By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and not withheld your son, your only son, blessing I will bless you, multiply and I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven and as the sand of the seashore. But notice verse 18. In your seed... All the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Galatians 3.16 We, Jesus, was the seed. In Romans it says um, um, that, that it's not seed plural, it's seed singular, speaking of Christ. Because Abraham offered his only begotten son, now God is obligated at this point, and, and keep this in mind because people will say, well, now, you can't force God into anything. No, you can't. But God in His sovereignty said, I'm binding myself by a blood covenant. And I will say, if I do not keep my word, I will suffer the, the consequences just like these animals did. I will die. Which means that God will be lowered and Satan will ascend to be the God of the universe. When Abraham offered his son, God is now obligated to offer his son. It's a covenant requirement. And God bound himself to it. Not because he had to, he did it because he wanted to. Now, all of that leads up to the night that... Um, Passover night, the night actually before Passover, because Jesus was crucified um, <clears throat> before Passover. But he had the meal. One of the, the signs of, of a covenant, after you give the, the terms, lay out the assets and liabilities, one of the, the acts of a blood covenant is you take, and we see this with um, when Abraham goes and, and, and frees Lot, 
On the way back, he meets Melchizedek. And it says he brought out bread and wine. And Abraham paid tithe to Melchizedek. Melchizedek is a type of or a theophany. There's a big debate. Was it actually a pre-incarnate display of Christ or just a type? Who cares? It's God saying all of the people of faith paid tithes through Abraham. But what they did was they had a covenant, a blood covenant meal. They took the bread, and we see this in, um, it's a pale comparison to it, but you still see remnants of this in a wedding feast. When you go to the, the reception, you have a cake, and the groom cuts a piece of cake, and the bride cuts a piece of cake, and they feed each other a piece of cake. That is a solemn, we treat it as, you know, in fact, it's become a joke now. You take the piece of cake and you squash it in each other's face. That is a remnant of a blood covenant. You take a piece of bread. In this case, Jesus did it on the night he was betrayed. He took unleavened bread, he broke it, and said, this is my body. This was done not that for, Jesus didn't do that uniquely. This had been done for centuries. Anytime you made a blood covenant, you took a piece of bread. Each of you did. You broke the bread and said, this is my body. I will break my body for you because we are now in covenant. And I fed you my bread. And you fed me your bread, showing that we are now united as one. And we took a cup of wine and said, my blood is now your blood. And your blood is now my blood, meaning we are joined. You see this, and I, I don't want to offend anybody, but I'm just going to be blunt. You see this in, in the marriage. One of the signs of the covenant is you make a scar. Well, what did, what did uh, the father tell Abraham to do? He said, I want you to, to circumcise yourself in your foreskin. Why? Because it's a sign that you are a believer. Paul goes through this whole thing in the, in the New Testament. Circumcision, physical circumcision is nothing. It's, it, it's nothing without the inward circumcision. But you see that when a marriage is consummated. The man is already bled if he was circumcised. Which means from this point on... All seed that he has will pass through symbolically the blood, his blood of the covenant. But what happens when, when the marriage is consummated? The virgin has a hymen. When it's broken, she bleeds. Because I've had people say, well, see, this is a patriarchal society. Women count for nothing. It's the man that gets circumcised. A woman's just a piece of property. Let me tell you, in the Old Testament, in the Jewish culture, that's exactly how they, they portrayed women. That's not how God looked at it. God said, no, they're part of the blood covenant. They will bleed, and the shedding of that blood is a symbol of the covenant they have with me. Paul says it in Ephesians, when he, at the, in, when he talks about marriage, Husbands, love your wives. Wives, submit to your husbands. And at the very end of that passage, he said, but this is a mystery because I'm not talking about just men and women. I'm talking about Christ and the church. It's a symbol of the covenant that we have with Almighty God. 
and he's bound to it. Go to, to Matthew 26. I got to hurry. I'm trying. You all are just listening really slow. Come on, get in there with me. Matthew chapter 26. This is when um, Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane. We're going to look at Matthew's account and Mark and Luke because they all record just a little bit different details. But in Matthew 26, verse 36 to begin with, it says, And Jesus, <clears throat> remember, this is after the Passover meal. you got the 11 disciples went with Jesus to the Garden of Gethsemane. Judas is off betraying Jesus right now. He's about to bring the soldiers in after this event. It says, Jesus came to them, or came with them, to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to the disciples, Sit here while I go and pray over there. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee. That's Peter, James, and John. I find it ironic. These are the same three men that had a vision of Jesus exalted in his glory. They saw the second coming on the Mount of Transfiguration. They saw Jesus in all of his glory. If you read it, it says they saw a vision. And Peter, bless his heart, he couldn't keep his mouth shut, and God had to rebuke him and shut him up. He said, listen, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. But, but if you notice in, in, in the Mount of Transfiguration, and I'm not going to go there, but Moses and Elijah came and spoke to Jesus. What are they sharing with him? I believe they're sharing with him what's about to happen. They're strengthening him with their words. Moses represents the law. Um, uh, Elijah represents the prophets. I believe they, they, and who knows how long it took, because when you get in the spirit like that, a second can be hours. And hours can be consumed in a, in a second. If you've ever had God reveal something to you, give you a revelation, it may take you days to explain to someone what God told you in five seconds. Well, Moses and Elijah took Jesus, I believe, from Genesis through the end of the Old Testament and showed him all of the things that he was going to have to fulfill. He already knew it, but they're just giving him a little more strength because what he's about to face is going to test him like he's never been tested. He was tempted for 40 days, faced the devil down to his face, fasted for 40 days, and yet this is a greater test, greater temptation than those 40 days in the desert ever were. But he took these three men, he says, and he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. And he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful. The word there for soul, the Greek word there is psyche or suke. If you go to, 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 and I'm not going to turn over there, but, but 1 Thessalonians and Hebrews, it talks about in Hebrews um, 4.12 that the Word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, able to, to divide between soul and spirit. Numa and, and suke. In 1 Thessalonians 5.23, it's, Paul says, May you be blessed, spirit, numa, soul, sight, or suke, and body, which is there, it's soma. He, Paul divides the human um, person into three parts. We, we've looked at it before when we looked at salvation. Salvation, our salvation has three parts. We have been saved, my spirit, my pneuma. 
Jesus, the Holy Spirit, came and is living and residing in me now. He's one with my spirit. John says in 1 John that in your spirit you cannot sin. But there's also the soul of man, the suke, the mind, the will, and the emotions. Paul said in, in Romans 12, you need to renew your mind. That's salvation in process. I'm being saved as I renew my mind. And I control that process. I can be saved quickly by studying and agreeing and exercising and putting my faith that, God, I'm going I'm to walk this out. I don't care what I have to do. I'm going to walk this out. I'm going to see your spirit manifest. You can do that or you can ignore the Bible and just walk like mere men. It's, it's up to us. God won't force that part of salvation on you. But then there's the ultimate, the, the salvation to come. That's my flesh, my soma, my sarks. That I get at the um, rapture of the church. When this mortal will put on immortality. If, if I'm alive when Jesus comes back, then my flesh will be changed in the moment, in a twinkling of an eye. And I, it will change so much that I will take off through the ceiling and meet Jesus in the air. I've always dreamed of flying. That was my, as, as a kid, I wanted to go to the Air Force Academy. If I'd have had 20-20 vision, I would have been in the Air Force Academy. All I ever wanted to do was fly. And I'm believing when I get to heaven, I'm not going to have to jump in a plane to fly. Because I didn't want to just fly a little. I, love, I like flying in any kind of airplane. But my dream was, I want in the fastest jet on the planet. And I want to fly as low to the ground as I can get and as fast as I can go. That's what I want. Well, I'm not going to have to have a plane when I get a new body. It's going to be able to fly. But that salvation is future tense. Jesus here, he says, my soul, my suke, my mind is just driving me crazy. He says, I am exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. And that watch means to be on guard. It means to be a watchman on the wall. Come here, guys. Peter, James, John, I need you to come pray with me. In fact, he rebukes them later on. He's praying because his mind, his will, his emotion do not want to do what he's about to do. Let's read on. Verse 39. He went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed, saying, Oh, my Father, if it is possible... Notice, he calls on his relationship with the Father... And he said, if it is possible, this is the Greek word dynatos, where we get our, our word for dynamo. It means, God, my Father, I'm calling on you as my Father now, not as the God of the universe, but my personal Father. Do you have it in your great power to make it to where I don't have to go through this? He's calling on the power of God, not the will of God, the power of God. The same power that created every atom in the universe. Same power that created everything. He's calling on that power and saying, Lord, I don't want to do this. Are you powerful enough to break this? But then, let this cup pass from me. 
I don't want to do this. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Now here, this is Jesus' prayer of consecration. This has been the most, one of the most, if not the most, abused Scripture in all of, of, of the Bible. Because people will say, see, I, I, in fact, I had someone close to me. They were faced with the death of a child. And Gina and I went. We tried to minister to them. We tried to encourage them and say, look, it's not God's will for your child to die. You can stand in faith, and we will stand with you, and we will fight. Now, there's no guarantee that I'm going to see the results. Never guarantee in the fight of faith. But my faith is going to get out there, and I will fight with you. I'll pray for you every day. I'll come to your house and pray for you every day if you need me to. But they had a relative that was closer physically, and it was the brother of the husband, who was a pastor and said, healing's not for today. And their, their whole stand was, we just want God's will. We're praying that God's will be done. Not, his, not my will, but His will. They used Jesus' prayer of consecration as a prayer of faith. I don't know what God's will is, but if the child lives, that's His will. If the child dies, that's His will. No, a thousand times no. We just talked about it when we prayed for the sick up here. Jesus redeemed us from the curse of the law and every sickness and every disease that's named and even those that are not named is part of the curse of the law. It's always God's will for the sick to be healed. This is not Jesus saying, God, I don't know your will. Just do whatever you want. This is Jesus saying, I've got this thing set before me. And I don't want to do it. My flesh recoils from it. In fact, he's going to say just in a minute. Let's go on and read. He said, verse 40, He came to the disciples, found them sleeping, said to them, Peter, what? Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit, the pneuma, is indeed willing, but the flesh, the sarke, this physical body is weak. He's not just referring to Peter's physical body. He's referring to his own physical body. My body doesn't want to do this. My soul, my mind, and my will, and my emotions are revolted at what God's asked me to go through. And I don't want to do it. But Lord, and he knew what was coming. Remember, this is the same Jesus that walked through those animals in Abraham's stead. He made that covenant with the Father. He knows I have to die the death that those animals died because Abraham didn't keep the covenant. And all of Abraham's seed had broken the covenant. And it's up to me to die just like these animals did. They're going to butcher me. They're going to kill me. They're going to brutalize me. And I don't want to do it. But God... I will surrender to even that if you tell me. He called on his relationship. He called on the power of God. And God said, we've already agreed. You have to get your mind in order and you have to force your body to do what it has to do. And he surrendered to it. Mark chapter 14. That Mark records this. 
And, and remember, when he says his flesh, he's not a talking about the fallen nature. Jesus didn't have the fallen nature of man. He's just talking about a physical body. It wasn't sin, temp- I mean, it was a temptation, because if, had, if he'd have said, not doing it, the covenant would have been broken. And we would have been left dead in our sins. And we would have died instead of him. But instead, he just was looking at his body as weak. In Mark chapter 14, verse 35, he went again. It says he went a little farther and he fell on the ground and he prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father. Mark records, Daddy. I don't know about you, but I've had my kids when they were little. And, and even the, today, my son just turned 41. And today, to this day, if he calls me dad, my wallet's open, my heart's open. I don't care what that boy asks for. If I've got the power, I'll give it to him. When he comes and says, Dad, I need this. I'm his dad. My heart is to give him everything I can. That's what Jesus is calling on the Father for. If it's possible, if it's within your power, take this cup from me. But a second time he said, nevertheless, I'm going to surrender to your will. Jesus knew it was God's will for him to go to the cross. He just was struggling because his flesh and his mind revolted. But he said, no, I'll do that. But notice in Luke chapter 22, verse 43, it says, Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. This was such a terrible, harsh thing that Jesus had to... And he's willing. He's just fighting with it. This is the perfect Son of God in perfect fellowship with the Father. And he's struggling to the point where he's sweating great drops of blood. But he's struggling because he does not, his mind and his flesh don't want to do this. And God sends an angel and strengthens him. Now, I don't have scripture for this, but my personal opinion, Hebrews 12, 2, It says, Jesus endured the cross for the joy set before Him. I believe that when this angel came to strengthen Him, I think He brought your face and my face. And He put our faces. He said, this is why you need to do this. Yes, it's horrible. They're going to butcher you. They're going to torture you. This is going to be horrible to your flesh and to your mind. But look what the fruit's going to be. And he saw us. He looked at us. That's why it's so... My grandkids will get after me. But it's so stupid to reject the offer of salvation. He did all of this because he saw your face. And he said, this is yours. All of the junk you've got, your pile of assets... I will take all of that because all we had was filthy rags and sin. Our best works were still polluted with sin. He said, I'll take all of that junk 
and I will give you my righteousness. I will give you my inheritance. I will give you everything I've got. It's all yours because I'm willing to go do this. That angel strengthened him. And that leaves us with the choice. And it's not just a matter of getting born again. Because I'll be honest with you, for the most part, I have no doubt, the vast majority of you all, I'm preaching to the, to the choir. You're saved. You have that past salvation experience. In your spirit, you are one with the Holy Spirit. The choice we have is the same choice that Jesus had in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's saying, I laid my life down for you. Now I'm asking you, will you lay your life down for me? Yeah, Galatians 2.20. This is Paul. He said, I'm crucified with Christ. I didn't go to the cross. But in God's eyes, when Jesus went to the cross, I was nailed right there alongside of Him. I never kept the covenant. Even though I'm a child of Abraham, I'm a child of faith. I still fail. I still sin. I'm still a fallen creature. But God looks at me and He says, No, don't you call yourself fallen anymore. Just like He told Abram, you're now Abraham, when you have no children. You call yourself the father of, of nations. He looks at me, and I look at me, and I say, God, I'm just a miserable wretch. Everything I try to do, I screw up. The harder I try to do good, the worse I do. Now, maybe I'm unique. Maybe you don't struggle with that, but I'm going to be honest with you. I struggle with it every day from the moment I get out of bed till I go to sleep at night. Lord, I just can't do this. Of course you can't. Except for the fact that when I look at Christ, I'm on that cross with Him. When He died, I died. But the good news is, I was crucified with Him, but nevertheless, Galatians 2.20, I live. I died, but I'm not dead now. I'm alive. Yet, not me. It's not me that the life I'm living now is not the life of me. It's Christ that lives in me. Would God that we could get a revelation that it's not me that has to walk this out. Jesus Christ, the Son of the Most High God, lives on the inside of me. And His Holy Spirit anoints me. It means He empowers me. You know, if you come up and you ask the elders to anoint you, we'll, we'll, we'll put a little oil on our, our finger and we'll put a little cross on your forehead. You want to know how they anointed in the Old Testament? They took a bottle of oil and they broke the lid off and they turned it upside down on your head. And it started on your head and it ran down through to all the way to your feet. That's the anointing that we have. The Holy Spirit doesn't come and just give you a little touch. He comes and just totally envelops you and takes over you if, and this is the rub, if you will say, God, I surrender my life to you. Not just to get saved. I don't just want fire insurance. I pay a lot of money to keep insurance on my two cars and on my house. Because I'll be honest with you, that's, the, that's everything I own in the world. That's my entire assets, my house primarily. And I keep it insured. If it burns down, 
I go to the insurance company and I said, here, I've paid my dues. I want you to give me the money. I've got to replace it. That's fire insurance. My salvation is not just fire insurance. It's not just, God, when I die, you're going to take me to heaven because I'm saved. I've trusted in Jesus. No, I get out of bed in the morning and I say, God, I'm yours. I was crucified with Him, but I'm living the day through His power. I want you to anoint my life and you help me to walk out my life just like Jesus would walk it out if He could walk for me. That's why I'm required to listen to His Spirit. Listen to His voice. He says, my sheep hear my voice. I cringe when I hear Christians say, I don't hear God. I guess God's just stupid. He said you hear Him, but you say no. Yes, you do hear Him. But you know what? It's like we have a little sign over in the fellowship hall. It says, my wife says I don't listen to her. Unless I think that's what she said. <laughs> my wife will tell you, you don't listen to me, John. And my response is, well, what did you say? I prove her right quite often. God is speaking. Are we listening? You go back in Mark chapter 4, the parable of the sower. It's the cares of this world. It's the deceitfulness of riches that choke the word and we become unfruitful. There are lots of things to do, lots of good things to do. Just because it's good doesn't mean it's God. But what are you involved in? What are you, have, you, have you done what Jesus said? Lord, I'm going to... My mind revolts at just turning. In fact, I've heard, dear God, I said it. When I was out in the world, I commented to someone about my mom and dad. I said, you know, church is okay for Sunday. But they just, they think they can do this Monday through Sunday. It's just a little too radical for me. To me, church would just go to church you know, in fact, at that point in time, I was in the Catholic Church, and, and I'm not faulting the Catholic Church. <laughs> it was my stupid theology. And I, I went to the Catholic Church because I could get drunk on Saturday night, go to confession on Sunday morning, get my sins wiped out, and just go on and live like the devil the rest of the week and come back on Sunday morning, go to confession, and get cleaned up. And you know, God just, he's got to be standing in heaven slapping himself on the forehead. I said, will that boy ever learn? Well, thank God I did. I finally figured out if he, if he died for me, if I died in Him, then I can live in Him, and it's not my life. I, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6.20, it's not me. I was bought with a price. I was redeemed out of the slave option. He's made me His son, but He said, if you're my son, come work for the company. And if I work for the company, I listen to the boss and I do what the boss says. And the boss says, live for me. I will walk it out for you. I, you can walk it out through me. I will empower you. Uh, 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 Peter just walked down the, the road and his shadow fell on people and they got healed. You think that was Peter's doing? Peter didn't do anything except walk. But the power of God was so evident in his life that people said, if you just get near Peter, you'll get healed. The power of God, which uh, Peter, James, and John, when they went into the, to the, the, the temple, 
the man that was lame, the, the man that was lame said he reached out for him expecting to get alms. And they said, silver and gold I don't have, but what I do have I give to you. And they reached out and said, in the name of Jesus, rise up. They had the power of God. They knew they had it because they learned their lesson. This night they wouldn't pray with Jesus. Jesus was betrayed. He had all kinds of power. I'll close with this one. At the, at the very end of it, when Judas came to betray him, he kissed him. That was the sign. He kissed him, and they asked him, they said, Are you the Son of God? Are you Jesus? He said, I am. And they all fell down. You'll even see an account, and I forget which gospel it's in now, that it says that there was a young boy that showed up just shortly after that, and all he had on was a cloth. And they, they asked him what he was doing there because they thought he was one of the disciples. And when he couldn't answer them, he started to run away and they grabbed the cloth and it says he ran off naked. Tradition says that was John Mark. And John Mark had died and was in his tomb. And when Jesus, the tombs were right there by the Garden of Gethsemane, and when Jesus said, I am, and it knocked all those guards down, knocked them out, there was so much power in that in that word that John Mark came out of the grave. He only had one cloth on him because he was in his grave clothes. They had already anointed him and put him in his burial cloth and that's all he had to wear. That'll get your ministry started. That power resides on the inside of us. One of the signs of the blood covenant is the memorial meal. Now, the last sign, and I didn't give this one, is if you go into a blood covenant, you plant a memorial tree. <laughs> Adam and Eve had all of the garden to eat. They had one tree. Don't eat of that one. God gives us one tree, and He says, Come eat. Eat freely. Our tree, our memorial tree, is the cross. It's the symbol. It's the reason that when you think of Christians, you think of the cross. Now, the cross is empty, just like the tomb is empty. But this meal that we eat, this is the body and the blood of Jesus but I want you to see it a little differently now. This isn't just representing the physical body of Christ, although it does represent that. This is the memorial meal of the blood covenant. This is what Jesus did back in, in Genesis 15 when He walked through those dead animals and walked through all of that blood. He made a covenant with the Father and He said, Abraham can't keep this one but I'll, I'll stand in His place. And He broke the bread. And He said, this is my body. And He took the glass of wine, which represented His blood. The blood that he, was, that he was passing through was the blood of animals. It was only temporary. But the blood that He offered is eternal. In fact, if you look at after the resurrection, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb 
She didn't recognize Jesus. She thought he was the gardener. She said, sir, where are you taking his body? And she ran up and grabbed him. And he said, Mary, don't hold on to me. I haven't yet ascended. The whole point there, she didn't recognize his physical body, but when he spoke, she said, my Lord. She recognized the power of his word. And she knew it was Jesus. But he told her, he said, don't hang on to me. I'm not finished yet. I've got to, it, it says in Hebrews that the, the tabernacle, the temple, all of the, the, the paraphernalia of bringing the sacrifice, and the law is detailed how you bring the sacrifices. All of that is just copies of what's in heaven. The resurrection completed the, the paying the price for all of our sin. But the true completion was when Jesus took His own blood and He walked into heaven and He poured that blood out on the mercy seat. And that blood gives an example. He said the, the, the blood of, of Abel cries out for vengeance. That's the blood of the natural man that was murdered. The blood of Jesus sits in heaven for all eternity crying out. They're forgiven. They're forgiven. They're forgiven. We, we looked several weeks ago. When you look at the white throne judgment in Revelation, you have a choice. You can be judged out of the books of works. You can say, hey, I lived a good life. And my good works more than outweigh my, my sin. When you do that, God will add them all up. And He'll put it up against Jesus' life because His life was perfect. And if your works don't measure to His works, you go with the goats. You go into the lake of fire. You go into eternal damnation. But there's also another book, singular, there's a book. That is the book of His justice. And that book cries out mercy. When you get judged by that one, it's you come into the court, Satan will be right there. He'll throw up your whole life. Look at what this guy did. You can just count off this sin, that sin, this sin, that sin, this sin, that sin. And he'll go through them. But if you've, if you've ever been into a courtroom, the first thing they do, you have an, an arraignment, and the judge will look at you and he said, do you plead guilty or not guilty? And what's my plea? My plea is, I plead the blood. Am I guilty? You betcha. Totally guilty. Old Testament says, though your sins be as scarlet, I will wash them white as snow. You compare the Old Testament blood of bulls and goats, take a piece of leather. Take one you don't really want. You put an ink stain on it. That's your sin. You take blood, rub it on there. You won't see the ink stain, you'll just see the blood stain. And you wipe it again, and you wipe it again. That's what the Israelites did with the law. Every year, 
They put a little more blood on. They put a little more blood on until all you could see was the blood. But you knew there's sin in there. Jesus' blood, you've got that dark stain of sin. You apply His blood. It doesn't stain that leather. It makes that leather brand new. He, Jesus used the example. He said, look at the wineskin. When, when, when in the old covenant or in the ancient times when they would ferment wine, they would put it in a leather bag. And as it fermented, pressure would grow. And it would start to swell. And if the, wet, if the leather got old, it would crack and it would burst open and you'd lose all your wine. But if you wanted to renew an old wineskin, what did you do? You took the oil and you rubbed it in. And it would take that old leather and it would soften it and make it pliable so that when you put that, that juice in there and it started fermenting and it started swelling, it wouldn't crack. It could take the pressure. The, ta- the, the story of the, of the Good Samaritan, that's exactly what happened. He poured in the oil and the wine. The oil is the, the presence of the Holy Spirit. The wine is the blood of Jesus. That's what God does for us. He says, this body, my body, is broken for you. I'm making a blood covenant with you. I have shed those animals that are dead and dismembered. I did that for you. Now today, as we partake of this, we have a covenant with the Father through Jesus. The question is, will we surrender to that covenant and allow Him to live through us? Part of that, take take the benefits. You have sickness, this body was broken for your healing. You have limitations, this body has no limitations. I, I, th- this past week I had one day where I was on the road for 14 hours. I got home, I was so tired I couldn't see. You know what? Jesus has been awake for 2,000 years. And He's not tired. That's what I have access to. When a task comes to me and it's tiring, I can say, God... I'm depending on your body. I'm depending on the energy of heaven to get me through this task so I can do it with excellence. Whatever your need, as you take this this bread, this is the bread of the new covenant in His blood. His body was broken for you as a symbol that you have that covenant with Him. Take and eat. Jesus also took the cup. He said, this is the cup of the new covenant. I cut a covenant in place of Abraham back here. Tonight, I'm going to go. And the cross wasn't the... the, It didn't begin with the cross. Remember, Jesus was beaten. They blindfolded Him when He took Him before the Sanhedrin. And they beat Him. Said, you're a prophet, tell me who's hitting you. And they beat him senseless. And then they took him before the Romans. And and Pilate got frustrated with him because Jesus wouldn't defend himself. So he said, well, take him and scourge him. Jewish law and Roman law for a Roman citizen, you could never give more than 39 stripes. For a non-citizen, they would beat him until they died. 
And they beat Jesus with a cat of nine tails to where he, he didn't appear human anymore. And then they put the cross on his back, shoved the crown of thorns on his head, took him to the cross, and nailed him and stood him up until he died physically. But even then it wasn't done. He, paid, he didn't just pay the, the price for our physical sins, he paid the spiritual price for our falling. You, if you envision what Jesus did as an elevator, he was at the top floor, he lived in the penthouse, he took the elevator as low as it will go. You, you think of the most despicable person that ever lived, and there's a lot of them, a lot of good examples. Hitler, Paul Pot, Mao, just in our lifetime. Killed millions upon millions upon millions of people. He went all the way as low as they were. And he paid for every sin. Spirit, soul, and body. And then when he resurrected, he came out. And he went back to the penthouse. And he said, now, put it in, in the, the hillbilly translation, y'all come. Doors open. There's, no, there's nothing hindering you. All you have to do is say, this blood is my blood. I haven't shed physical blood, but I do circumcise my own heart. And I say, I want your blood to be my blood. And He will take my sin, and He gives me His righteousness in its place. Take and drink. Thank you so much for joining us today. If this message has blessed you, we invite you to visit us in person at the corner of Highway 31 South and Southport Road, Indianapolis, Indiana, or visit us online at FCCIndianapolis.com.